Okay. Uh, we're going to get back today into Ephesians. And uh, for those of you who may be visiting, we're kind of working our way through the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. You can turn there uh, if you want to. We, we came to uh, Paul's list of ones. One spirit, one uh, body, one faith. It starts in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. And uh, and he starts out, it actually comes out from his discussion, I think we kind of started this section when we were talking about the uh, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I'm just going to read this little section here of Ephesians 4, 3 through 6, and then um, try to bring us back up to speed. Um, it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. And uh, that word, as we've been looking at, is, is better translated, expectation, just as you were called, and one expectation of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Um, we started this section talking about the nature of of uh, our unity in the body of Christ, and and we talked about how this unity is not is not something that Paul is telling us to create by any means whatsoever. This is not this is not an agreement in doctrine. This is not a bunch of denominations deciding to get along or deciding to have good relationships. It's nothing natural at all. It's nothing like that. The, the unity that Paul's describing here is is a many-membered body coming to share one spirit. Many members sharing one spirit. It's one life living in one body. Unity is is the unity that, that Paul is describing here. The unity that Jesus describes in John chapter seventeen and prays for in John chapter seventeen that they may be one, even as we are one. All of that. That's not something we're trying to do. That's not something that we try to establish at all. It is something that God established in the resurrection where he made us go into the death of Christ and made of the two, Jew and Gentile, one new man, establishing peace, as, as Ephesians uh, chapter 2 talks about. It's something you grow to realize and walk in as we learn and abide in, the, as we learn this life and as we abide in the life that, that uh, we have been given. And, and just quite simply, we, we, we live and we act divided as the body of Christ because we don't know what's real. That, that's a fact. We live contrary to what God has done because we haven't allowed the Spirit to show us what God has done. You know, your, your hand and your foot, they, they don't need to create or establish a unity. They already have Unity. They, ha- they are united by virtue of the same life that, that, that moves through them both. But unless one mind, here's the key, unless one mind and one nervous system is functioning rightly, a hand and a foot might actually feel and act independently of each other. In a natural body, we would call that a, a disease or, or a sickness. In, in the body of Christ, it's called carnal-minded blindness. Um, I was thinking this week as I was writing kind of just some, some thoughts about that. I was thinking about, I spent a couple summers during college uh, working in a physical therapy department at a hospital. 
and uh, and I basically I was um, kind of assigned by the physical therapist to help uh, post-op patients, people that had just had surgery, with uh, strength, strengthening exercises. You know, people that had a total hip replacement, strengthening uh, you know their legs and, and and some gait training and that kind of stuff. But every once in a while, we'd have a um, We'd have a person come in that had had a, a, a major stroke, and uh, we would help them try to regain some control over over part of their body that was affected by the stroke. And I don't know if you've ever seen anybody that's that's um, suffered a major stroke, but sometimes they lose total control of half of their body, and not only do they lose control over half of their body, they they, they even kind of come to lose awareness of or, or kind of attachment to the side of the body that is, uh, uh, that is affected by the stroke. It, it can be very extreme. And I, I was thinking about this one time. I'll never forget this. This is really bizarre. I thought it was really strange at the time. There was this one elderly man. I guess this, you know, I'm sure this happens uh, often, but there was this elderly man that was, he was laying on one of our exercise beds in the, in the physical therapy room. There's this big room with all these uh, kind of low-lying um, vinyl bed things that we do exercises with them on and he was lying on this bed and he had he had had a major stroke and he was he had one of his arms I don't know how to picture it was kind of hanging off the end of the bed with his with his hand still kind of on the bed so his arm was kind of over the over the edge of the bed disappeared over the bed with it but his hand was still hanging on to the to the pad and he's sitting there doing his exercises uh, with, uh, with his legs and um, and this is one of those guys that had not only lost you know, control of that side of his body, he, he, the stroke had somehow left him oblivious to, to the fact that it was part of him. And uh, so at one point he's laying there in the bed like that and, 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 um, and he was doing something, I don't know, something with his ankles or something, trying to you know, recover some strength. And he looks over and he sees the hand uh, holding on to the side of his bed and he goes, ah! He screamed all these screams. <laughs> and he's like, there's a man reaching up from underneath my bed. And he's, he's, he actually thought his arm belonged to somebody else who was sneaking up, you know, <laughs> from under, under his bed. And I remember just sitting there thinking, that, that is amazing. I, you know, I reassured him that it was his own arm. But um, just the fact that he was completely unaware and unattached to a part of his own body. And you've probably jumped ahead of me here. That's a true story. But uh, I'm telling it because that's how we act in the body of, of Christ. I can almost imagine, I was thinking of that story, and I started kind of giggling because I can imagine Jesus looking at the church sometime and saying, Ah, there's, there's a strange group of people in this building or something. And the Father, you know, the father calms him down. Son, that's just your body. And Jesus is like, what, what's it doing? You know, what's wrong with it? You know, the Father says, well, there's been a, there's been a malfunction, son. It shares your life, but not your mind. That's what it's like. The natural mind trying to live by the life of the Lord. It's like a giant stroke. We operate in disunity and, and, and constant conflict in the body of Christ, in the flesh, because we want to relate in the flesh. We relate in the flesh because we want to live in the flesh. And in fact, so many, even in the body of Christ, remain unaware that there even is such a thing as sharing one life, relating in that life, living by that Spirit, walking in that Spirit, relating by the Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we no longer relate according to the flesh. 
and yet that is a, a, just a, for so many and for most of my life. Just some, somehow I just, you know, you just read over that and verses like that. Unity is what God has done through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He brings us into one death and raises us up into one spirit. And now growth and life and fellowship and unity has to do with learning to live by, learning to live in and walk in that one life, that one spirit. And that happens when God reveals that life, that son in you. You can't just decide to walk in the Spirit. Good luck with that. You must know the Spirit that lives in you. You must have His heart, His mind, His will formed in you. And then there is something to abide in and to relate in and to live by. So there is the necessity that the Christ that is in you by new birth be revealed in you by the Spirit of God. Or, or this is just all something you're going to try to do in the flesh. So we spent, we spent a few weeks on the reality of, of, uh, of, of one faith. And then we, we got into one hope, or, or better translated, one expectation. Because we're one, body, one spirit in one body, sharing one mind, that one expectation arises out from from your soul. The one faith is the one mind of Christ. It is one sun known by one light, one view, one awareness, one truth, one understanding, working in you, working in the body. And it joins us together as Philippians. Philippians is all about coming to one mind, coming to one judgment. That one faith brings you to one mind, brings you to one judgment. And it brings forth in you, and this is what we spent the last few weeks on, it brings forth out from you one expectation. Faith brings forth expectation. And so uh, we, as the body of Christ, are not a bunch of people believing something that is the same. We, are, as the body of Christ, are supposed to be one body coming to one mind, one judgment, one spirit, one expectation, bringing forth one nature, which is love. Many members, but one faith working in all of us. And in the elderly man that I mentioned, one mind or, or one faith is precisely what he needed. He had all the right amount of body parts. You know, He had plenty of life. He didn't need more life. What he lacked was one mind governing each limb. One mind. In order to function rightly, in order to function according to purpose, the many members have to not only share one life, they have to also live and move by one mind. We must, by the work of the Spirit of God, by the revealing of the Spirit of God, come to one faith. We must learn Him. We must not learn about Him. That's not going to bring unity. That's going to bring disunity. When it's a bunch of natural minds having opinions about Him, that's where division comes from. But when it's the mind of the Lord wrought in your soul, written on your heart, then there is only one thing seen. We come to a place where in Him and by Him we come to know Him. We come to have Him will. And as it says in Philippians 2.13, God is at work within us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We're conformed to Him. We're constrained by Him. One faith brings forth one expectation, brings forth one love, one life.
And so we talked about how the, how the spirit working in the body uh, brings us to the expectation that what God has planted in us will, will come to fruition, will come to realization. And that's kind of where I got sidetracked for a few weeks on talking about expectations and how, how we as the body of Christ have so many expectations for God, for one another, that have not come out from the one faith, that have not been born out from that one expectation, but that are in fact things that we imagine, things that we drag into the church, things that we drag into Christ of the natural mind. And we, we, we project our own expectations on Him and then we live in the confusion and disappointment of, quote, God letting us down. But God never lets you down according to the expectation that He has for what He has put in you. He may or may not fulfill the expectations that you have projected onto Him. But God has an expectation for His body. The life of God must work in us by faith according to God's expectation, God's eternal plan, God's eternal purpose. And that is altogether different and, and indescribably better than our own ideas. We have our own version of, of faith, expectation, and love. You know, if faith is your mind's beliefs and expectation is what you think God's going to do for you, love is just going to be whatever you think it is. And all three of those uh, are going to be a natural version of something that is purely spiritual and altogether supernatural. So, anyway, that, that's kind of trying to bring us back up to where we are now in Paul's list of ones. One spirit... One body, one faith, one expectation, but his list continues. So we're going to move on today into verse 5, where he also mentions one Lord, one baptism, and uh, then goes on to describe one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. Um, I want to spend most of the time on the one baptism part, uh, but I just want to say a few things here first about one Lord and one Father, just for the sake of completeness. Um, I can't say that I have a solid grasp on the Trinity. Uh, I don't know who, who really does. But there are a few things I, I just want to share. Um, I've seen a bit, so I want to share a bit. Um, there's no question that the New Testament describes something like what we call the Trinity. And the reason I say something like is simply because the Bible never really says that word. It's a word, the Trinity is a word that we use to talk about God in the way that the Bible describes. And I think it's a good word. You know, I think it's a word that fits the bill as much as any word can. Um, I, I was thinking, that I remember in college, one time in college, there was this dude that um, he was trying to convince me, he was trying to talk me out of the, uh, the idea that Jesus was divine, you know, was, was God, uh, based on the fact that the Father is generally referred to in scripture as God and uh, Jesus is generally referred to as Lord and his arguments were kind of not very good and, and, and even with a carnal mind they could you know it didn't really do have a lot of impact on me but but I remember leaving that question leaving that conversation with this question as to why that was the case in other words why was the father usually called God and why was Jesus usually called the Lord and that was a question that just kind of like, you know, spun around in my head for a decade or so. Um, uh, and, and there are a few exceptions to that. There are, there are a few, there, you know, but there, there, there aren't a whole lot of exceptions uh, 
to in the New Testament where you'll see the Father called God and Jesus called Lord. There's maybe five or six times where Christ is specifically called God uh, and, and two or three where the, or four where the Spirit is specifically called God. There's, a, there's dozens where they are described as being God in one way or another, but specifically called God, it's usually the, the Father. So it was a long time before, uh, before the reason for that um, started to come into focus. And I just thought I'd share a little bit on what I've seen about that and then move into the, the baptism thing because that's more on my heart. But, but uh, though the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are indeed one, they share one life, and all three are obviously divine. There's no arguing that in the Scripture at all as far as I'm concerned. When I began to understand more of, more of salvation, more of Christ crucified, that's when I started to see that the differences in the Godhead weren't, weren't in nature or kind or purpose. The differences in the Godhead really had much more to do with their role or position in salvation. In other words, our salvation is an encounter and an experience with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It, is, it, it involves this dynamic relatedness to all three persons of one God. And I want to be careful kind of how I talk about that because you can go wacko with, with, uh, with the Trinity. I mean, just as, just as there is people uh, that, that talk about oneness, you know, there is no distinctions in the Godhead. There, there are Christians that go the other way and, and, and start uh, trying to talk and act as though we have three, three uh, uh, gods. In fact, I, you know, some of you know, I come from kind of a, more of a charismatic background in, in, in days past, and I, I, I encountered a lot of weird ideas in terms of people relating to the tri-unity of God. Not even, not even that long ago, I had someone, I was, I was talking to, to, about the finished work of God in Christ and the cross to someone, and they said to me something like, you know, it sounds like you have a pretty good relationship with Jesus, but how's your relationship with the Father? And I hope you know that that makes absolutely no sense. Um... And I'm not going to spend time picking that statement apart, but I mention it just because it, it gives an example of of, uh, of where we go weird uh, on, on the Lord with the natural mind. And, and, and it's not at all what I mean when I say our salvation is a dynamic relatedness to all three persons of one God. What I mean is that our salvation is unspeakably enormous. It is simple, and yet it is huge. It is... It involves being reconciled to God, brought back to Him in true relationship and covenant, and this is an encounter with the fatherhood of God. It involves also actually crucifying you to the Adamic man, making you dead to the world, dead to sin. This is an encounter with the Son of God. It also involves God's truth working in your soul, His light shining in your heart, Him bringing you to His mind in all things. This is an encounter with the Spirit of God. Not three gods, but an experience of the threeness of God in an enormous and incredible salvation. So it involves being adopted, brought into a position of full inheritance, sonship in the Father's house. This is an experience of the Father. It involves being made alive, united in spirit, raised up and seated in the heavens. This is an experience of sonship. The Son, the redemption of the Son. It involves ministering the presence and person of God through the church to those in the earth in gifts and in ministries. And there is another experience and relatedness to the Spirit of God. So these aren't three different gods by any means, and yet your salvation is without question 
an incredible experience and knowledge of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all of this is yours through Christ. All of this is yours is because you are placed into Christ. You've been joined to him. And so he is the husband of a bride. He is the head of a body. He is the king of a kingdom. He is the captain of your salvation. He is the ruler of his household. And that is why he is most often referred to as Lord. That is how he functions in relationship to you in salvation. That is how you come to know him. And as you grow up in him, you say, Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Not I, but the one who mightily works within me. Every thought is being taken captive unto the obedience of Christ. We come to know the Son as our Lord. And yet the Son has proceeded forth, he says, and come from the Father. The Father plans and purposes salvation. The Son accomplishes it. The Spirit reveals it. But all things have their origin and source in God the Father. He is the fountainhead. He is over all. And being joined to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, he has become your Father. Romans 8.15 But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The first thing that Jesus says when he comes out of the tomb is something he, that man has never heard before. He says to Mary, Go tell the disciples that I ascend to my Father and your Father. So he becomes our God in this way. We have been reconciled to him. You have entered into covenant with him. Jesus says in John 17 that, that, that God, in fact, now makes his home in you. God makes his home in you. You've entered into a relationship with, with him in Christ, whereas it says in, Ephesians, I'm sorry, in Hebrews, he is not ashamed to be called your God. You have come through Christ unto God. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Salvation is an encounter with God the Father. And, and, and though, this, though this doesn't really you know, explain every single word, occurrence of God or um, Father or Son in the New Testament, it, it kind of gives you, I think, a basic framework for, for seeing the hugeness of our salvation. Our salvation is an experience with the triunity of God, the, tri, the triune God. Ephesians 2.18 says this, For through him, Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That's quite a statement. So our boast as Christians is not just that we've had our sins forgiven by God. Our boast at the very least is that we have been born of one spirit, united to one son, reconciled and made to live in one father. It's, it's enormous. And it involves a, a salvation that came out from the father, was accomplished by the son, as revealed in you by the spirit. But anyway, let's move on, let's move on to this term, one, one baptism. One baptism. What, what is this one baptism that's mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 4? I hope, I hope that it's without, you know, just because this is our church, that it's obvious to uh, everyone here that this isn't talking about one ordinance of baptism. This isn't talking about one way to baptize people. Ordinance of baptism 
why we baptize people in water only exists because it is an outward demonstration and celebration of, of, of true baptism. It's an outward demonstration of the one baptism that Paul's talking about here. We're baptized into one spirit. We are baptized into Christ. But first of all, we're baptized into his death. And this is, honestly, this is really the only thing. I mean, this is what water baptism, I know it means different things to different denominations. I realize that. But it's really supposed to illustrate one thing. We are put down, dunked down into the death of the Lord, utterly submerged in his death. We are dunked into judgment. Water in the, in the, uh, in the types and shadows of the Old Covenant always, well... I was going to say always speaks of death and judgment. If it's, if it's rivers of living water, then it, then, it, then it speaks of the Spirit of God. But whenever you hear waters, deep waters, waves, billows, breakers, seas, all of that, that language in the Old Testament, it's always, always referring to death and judgment. There's, there's the water that destroyed the earth and, and judged the Adamic man in the flood. A whole world destroyed by water. There's the, the, the water that the Israelites passed through on their way out of Egypt, the Red Sea, that killed the entire army of, uh, of Pharaoh. Even Paul refers to this as a picture of our baptism into Christ in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul speaks of being baptized into the sea. Then there's uh, the water into which Jonah was submerged in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, an obvious picture. Jesus himself says that speaks of death and the judgment of the cross. He's, Matthew twelve forty. I wrote the verse down here. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Death. Judgment. There's water that was stopped up at the Jordan, if you remember, as the children of Israel passed into the, uh, into the land. Death was conquered and stopped up as Joshua leads the people onto resurrection ground. Water is used to describe death and judgment in the Psalms. David, uh, speaking by the Spirit of God and, and always pointing to Christ, but I wrote down some of the Psalms here. Psalm 42, all of your waves and billows have gone over me. Psalm 69, save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have come onto deep waters and a flood overflows me. Psalm 88, you have put me in the lowest pit in dark places in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me. This is speaking of Christ in, in burial, by the way. This is all speaking of Jesus taking the Adamic man and his, his death and, and, and sin and death upon himself into burial, putting away in the earth and then rising out. That's what the Psalms are about, primarily, just as a freebie, you throw it out there. The Psalms, uh, there's a lot we talk about of uh, death and, and judgment, and then there's a lot we talk about in resurrection. The Psalms largely speak of burial, largely speak of, of Christ in, as the judged man of God, awaiting, hoping, oh, do not be downcast, oh, my soul, there is hope, awaiting the dawn, awaiting the resurrection, coming forth into a new day. And there's so many psalms that, 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 are, that are about that. But I just throw that in there. But, but, but in some of these psalms, he, he, he mentions this judgment that has happened to him. And it's usually David in a cave or David about to be killed by bad old Saul and his gang. That's the one speaking these psalms. But, but he is speaking by the spirit of the Christ. Jesus says that. You know, uh, He says at one point, remember that thing, how does David, speaking by the spirit, say, the Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, said at my right hand. Remember that? Okay, 
I'm getting off into whatever. But the point is that in, in, in the Psalms, water, waves, sea, speaks of judgment and death. There's also there's an interesting verse in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, where it's speaking of the new creation, and it says, John, John says that in that creation there is no longer any sea. I, I take that to mean there's no longer death and judgment. It's over. It's spent. We who come to live by His Spirit are first baptized into His death. We who come to live on, 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 the, dry, on the dry ground, so to speak, are first drowned in the depths of the sea. And even in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, that's the order of it. Water and then land. Uh, I say all that to say that this is the picture of baptism. We are put down into his death and raised with him in newness of resurrection life. So many of us uh, refuse to acknowledge the first part. We want to live with Him. We want to live for Him without letting the Spirit of God bring us to the realization of dying with Him and not offering anything of ourselves to Him, but living before Him where it is Christ all and in all. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ. We take that as a, as a theology, but we don't understand it as a reality. If you are going to live before God Baptism has you first dead and then raised. And that's precisely what Jesus said in John chapter 3. Remember when Nicodemus uh, comes to Jesus at night and, 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 uh, and, and has, you know, he brings his little um, notebook full of questions. And he starts asking Jesus about the kingdom of God. He says, Look, I, I know that no, you've got to be from God because no one could do this stuff if they weren't from God. But, but here's my question. He starts asking about the, the kingdom of God. And Jesus answers in John 3, 3. He says, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot... And that literally should be born, of, of a, born from above. That's, a, that's the right translation of that. Unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and, and, and be born? And so, of course, you know, Nicodemus takes it to the natural as the natural mind always does. Jesus answers, Most assuredly, I say to you, and here's my point, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. See what Jesus is bringing into view here? He's showing, talking to Nicodemus, in, in possibly in language that Nicodemus would have recognized, water. Always bringing the judgment and death of God in, in the Old Testament scriptures. He's saying that we who come to live by that Spirit are first baptized into that death. That is the one baptism that Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 4. Romans 6, verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. And that is why all those psalms relate to you, incidentally. But just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. Baptism. Down and back up. Colossians 2.12 We were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 12.13 For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we have been made to drink into one spirit. 
There's just one baptism. The outward one that we do, we, we have a uh, we have a galvanized horse trough back there that we've used for some bap- baptisms. It's a high-tech piece of equipment. Uh, but whatever we do in that galvanized horse trough is, is a, obviously an outward representation, proclamation, demonstration, whatever word you want to use, of a baptism that has already taken place, whether faith has seen it or not. A few weeks ago, I read from a, a book uh, that I was reading on the tabernacle called, uh, by, by this guy. He was born in 1805 named Henry Saltau. I don't know how to pronounce it. S-O-L-T-A-U. And uh, for those interested, the book's called The Holy Vessels and Furniture of the Tabernacle. It's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, I've just been really refreshed by a lot of what this guy has to say. And, and the last time, if you remember, I quoted uh, a paragraph about, because I was doing that thing on the, on the School of Christ, about how the order is death first and then death, heaven, and then earth. And it sounded totally wacky, but, but it's the order of Scripture. First you die with him, then you're raised and seated in heaven, and you learn the heavenly reality, relationship, and realm of Christ, and then that is manifested in the earth. And so the, the spiritual order is death, heaven, and then earth. And then I, I was reading that, that book on the tabernacle, and here this guy says the exact same thing, and I got all, I did like a backflip and threw the book in the air, remember that? And, and so I came in and I read that, and, uh, and uh, so anyway, I was reading on, on in that same, that same book, and, uh, and he was talking about the laver in the tabernacle, the water in the tabernacle, and he went off uh, onto this little kind of side thing about baptism. In the, in the chapter on the labor. And, um, and uh, if you don't know what that is, that's just, it was this big, uh, big round thing full of water, bath kind of thing, a big giant bird bath thing in the tabernacle. And, uh, and so he started talking about water, and, and, and then, he, then he went off into, into baptism. And I'm just going to read this paragraph because it's, it's just outstanding. It's, he says this, It is not only Christ, but Christ crucified that must be known. If the sinner would be cleansed, and have everlasting life. Here the fountain of life is combined with the cleansing waters of death and judgment. Baptism is a type of these two things, death and resurrection, judgment and life, salvation, but salvation through destruction. The believer plunged beneath those waters has vividly set before him the reality that he has been buried with Christ into death and that he owes his cleanness and consequent life and fitness for God's presence to the blessed fact that he uh, blessed fact of his having been judged in Christ crucified and has thereby suffered in the flesh and ceased from sin washing and burial are thus combined for God's mode of washing the sinner is through death the death of his son out of whose grave as typified by the waters of baptism the believer has been raised, quickened into new life, made clean every whit, and brought into the family of God. Baptism is a type not of the washing away of the filth of the flesh. I'm just going to say that again because that's so important. Baptism is a type not of the washing away of the filth of the flesh, but of the destruction in judgment of the flesh itself. At the same time, there results the answer of a good conscience towards God, which is in Peter, First Peter, because the old man has been destroyed and the new and holy life imparted through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's fantastic. 
I wish there was more books like that. I was going to write him a letter, but I figured he wouldn't get it. Um, so anyway, the one, the one baptism that Paul is referring to here is the spiritual reality of which the natural shadow testifies. And we do the natural shadow, you know, the natural shadow is done in church, not so that we can split churches over it, but it is supposed to be done in church to publicly demonstrate that we have partaken of a death and we have been made to live in the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. But you have to comprehend the end that comes before the beginning. You can't quite, and, and a lot of people do this, and I've done it before too. You can't quote John chapter 3 and say, you know, Jesus said you have to be born of spirit or you'll never see the kingdom of God. Now he said you have to be born of water and the spirit. That's, that's essential. Jesus is always careful to mention both of those. He does the same thing in John chapter 6 uh, when he describes eternal life to the crowd. Remember, there's this, there's this group of people that have all, I think, shortly after being fed miraculously, there's this crowd and he says to them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And in my understanding, this is exactly the same thing with different words. A different typology, same reality. Eating his flesh is partaking of his death. It is union with Christ in the destruction of that flesh. That's what died. It is judgment. Drinking the blood is coming to live by that life. Remember, in the Old Covenant, life is in the blood. To live by the New Covenant, to come, to come with him back into the presence of God, even as the blood, if you remember in the tabernacle, the blood went beyond the veil and was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Flesh never made it past the altar, right? Flesh is destroyed at the altar, burned and consumed, never entered the Holy of Holies. You never see a cow in the Holy of Holies, but you see blood. Only blood went in. And so we partake of his flesh, his death, we bear his judgment, and then we live by his blood. We eat the bread, we drink the wine. That's what it's all speaking of. And in Genesis chapter 40, I mentioned this one time before, but in Genesis chapter 40, uh, Joseph, remember Joseph the, with the multicolored dream coat? He, he, uh, he was in a, a, a dungeon with two other guys. And, and uh, one, of them, one of them was bread and one of them was wine. One of them was, remember, the, uh, the baker? One of them was the cupbearer. Both of them had dreams involving three days. A judgment involving three days. Three days and a judgment. Both of their dreams were about three days and a judgment. At the end of three days in the dungeon, Joseph, in the dungeon with Joseph, something, something happened to the bread maker and something, something different happened to the cupbearer. You remember the story. The bread maker was hung on a tree. Cursed is everything hung on a tree. He hung on a tree for, you know, the, the, the types and shadow, is, it's unmistakable. He's hung on a tree and killed. The bread maker. Clear and obvious picture of the judgment of God poured out on the body of Jesus Christ and us in that death. The cupbearer, however, 
was restored to the right hand of Pharaoh for the rest of his days. And, th- and that, that picture just gives me goosebumps. But it's, my point is just that Jesus is saying the same thing. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Born of water, born of spirit. Baptized into death, brought forth into resurrection. You die with him, and then you live by his life. You're not, it's not the, again, it's not, like Henry, Henry said, it's not, it's not, you're getting a bath. You're not getting cleansed from the flesh. You are being crucified to the flesh. This is the one baptism that Paul is describing in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Amen. You know,